Good morning, class! For today's history lesson, we're going to talk about someone very important. The President of the United States of America. Now, I'm sure a lot of your parents have told you that maybe one day you'll grow up to be the President. I want to let you know right now that that is a lie. Not one of you in this class will ever be President. Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of the Almost Presidents Podcast. I'm Ryan. And I'm Kevin. And this is our monthly podcast where we talk American presidential politics through the lens of the loser. So, Kevin, how are things going with you? Yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying the fact that I don't have to work outside, thankfully, because, man, it's been brutally hot the past couple of weeks. I was actually in the city last night uh, seeing Love It or Leave It, the podcast live. And, oh, fantastic. And, I love him. So, yeah, it's it, it was it was super fun. Uh, Janine Garofalo showed up. I don't know if you know Janine Garofalo. She's like a comedian. She was in the West Wing, a bunch of stuff. So she was there. And yeah, you know, it's it's a it's a super fun show. Um, it's interesting seeing it live because, um, you know, there there's a, there are things that get taken out in edits. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a great show. Lots of fun. But walking around. When we first got there, it was probably like six or seven ish. And we were walking through the streets of New York and it was it was just brutal. We were like sweating. It was, yeah. it was rough, but show was great. So, you know. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm actually really looking forward to the episode I'm listening to, at least the one that came out this Thursday. They have a Chris Christie interview, which I can't wait to get oh, to. Man. So I was kind of listening to that a little bit before we got on the mic. So I'm looking forward to getting to that because uh I, in equal parts, can and can't believe that they got him on Pod Save America. Just yeah, with how I mean, overtly I liberal they are. But at the same time, it works in the same way that, I guess, RFK works on the Far Right podcast. Yeah, and well, that's the thing is, is Chris Christie has made himself into kind of a never-Trumper type hero. So he is a perfect fit for all of these liberal left-leaning podcasts because he is very, very, very anti-Trump. Um, I don't know if it's good for his brand as a Republican, but... It's fine for them, I guess. Yeah, and it was funny because I was listening to a clip of the interview. I mean, I guess our whole intro is going to be about Love It right now, but uh, Love It's great. And Love It was basically saying to him that, hey, you know, 2016 was 2016. Those were the things that you believed at the time, but I believe that you know better now. And he kept denying it because he was like, look, I, I appreciate the compliment, and uh, but, I, but I think that you're wrong because that was how I felt at the time and all this stuff. And I look in the comments and everybody was thinking what I'm thinking that love. It was like, Hey, you know, what's going on now. You're, you're, you're wiser. You know, you've grown and you've changed your thoughts on these horrible things and you've come out the better for it. And then Chris Christie responding, no, you're wrong. <laughs> like, dude, take the compliment, bro. Uh, you're uh, not likely to get well, one on a left leaning podcast like that. Well, well, that's, that's the thing is, is, and this is what I said about RFK Jr. as well is, is him appearing on all these right wing podcasts. It alienates him from the voters he's trying to get. And I think that's what happens too, is Chris Christie goes on that podcast. And if he admits that he was wrong about XYZ in 2016, which probably at the time he was agreeing with the, Trump on a lot of things, right? Um, he actually kind of makes himself look bad with a conservative base because he's probably saying, oh, I pivoted on a bunch of these things to because I I'm now anti-Trump and I'm trying to appeal to the liberal media stuff. So he has to stake out this ground and say, no, 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 no. I'm the same guy. And as I was in 2016, but now I realized how crazy Trump was. Right. Which even that is not going to work for him in any way, because he's no, still, no way. at least to what I've heard, 
has not made a case for why he should be president. Which, okay, well, fair. Tear the other guy down. Everybody's too afraid to. But even on his, I think I might have even mentioned this on one of the podcasts that uh, on his campaign uh, website, the first thing that you see is get Chris Christie on the stage or something like that and then ask for a donation. So yeah. um, with that being said, my, my Chris Christie campaign buttons, I, I have a collection. Um, I have ordered <laughs> my Chris Christie ones. They have arrived and I love them. Nice. <laughs> Just seeing his freaking bullish bulldog face with uh you know chris christie 2024 because the truth matters yeah i, love well, I think when well, i think on our last uh florida man episode or maybe it was an earlier one i described this campaign as a kamikaze campaign which i think is is what he's trying to go for really absolutely i don't know if he'd say it out loud but i think in private in like private conversation he definitely would say like yeah i'm not even trying to win i'm just trying to take down trump at whatever it costs yeah um, and all so- the more power to him for it i mean that's he qualified for the first Republican debate. So we'll see if that's something that Trump winds up showing up at, but we will definitely have a big reaction uh, to that in the form of a podcast. All right. And as always, before we switch it up and bring you to this month's episode, make sure you're following us on social media on Facebook. We are at the almost president's podcast on Instagram, the almost president's podcast. And on Twitter, we are at almost POTUS pod. And you can also email us with any questions or comments about any of the episodes. Our email is thealmostpresidentspodcast at gmail.com. Enjoy the show. All right, now let's get into it. So today we'll be diving into part three of a multi-part series on Samuel Tilden and the disastrous election of 1876. If you haven't checked out the first two episodes in the series and want to go back and start at the beginning of the story, feel free to put this episode on pause and check that out. We'll be here when you get back. As for the rest of you listeners out there, let's go ahead and get started. So last episode, we talked about the beginnings of Reconstruction and how President Andrew Johnson set the tone for what would come to be known as presidential Reconstruction. And when we left off, Congress had reconvened in December in 1865, and the North had sent mostly Republicans many of whom were radical abolitionists who disapproved of Johnson's agenda. And meanwhile, the Southern states had put together their own delegations that were led largely by politicians and military figures that had led the Confederate government and military. So the first order of business for Congress was to decide whether those states that had been part of the Confederacy could indeed have representation in Congress. Remember, Congress does have the right to reject or dismiss any of its own members. The Republicans gained legitimacy around making the decision to reject all the prospective former Confederate legislators in two ways. First, they argued that they maintained war powers over the South, which was indeed a hostile force that had just gone to war with the Union. Second, Charles Sumner argued that Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution, which grants every state in the Union a Republican form of government, allowed Congress to reject some of the powers of Southern states. This was because there was not equality of citizens under the law in southern states. Freed people were still treated as second-class citizens despite being liberated from slavery at the end of the Civil War. And so southern states could not be said, therefore, to have a Republican form of government, and therefore Congress could impose Republican government upon them as part of their constitutional duty. And of course, just as a side note, we're meant to ignore the fact that the North didn't exactly have equality of citizens under the law either, but I digress. 
The Republican caucus created a joint congressional committee to investigate the southern states and determine if they met the standard of Republican government and if they were entitled to be represented in Congress. And until that committee submitted its findings, no member of Congress would be received from the former rebel states. Edward McPherson, who was the new House clerk for the 39th Congress, called the role of its members. And noticeably missing from the list of names were those representatives who had been sent from the rebel states. McPherson, who was close friends with Thaddeus Stevens, had refused to read off their names. The rebel congressmen and senators were rejected and refused seats in Congress. With the Southern Democrats rejected from Congress, Republicans now held 70% of the seats in the Senate and 75% of those in the House. So they had very commanding presence in both areas of Congress. And Thaddeus Stevens declared that Congress was in the midst of a revolution. And he called on Congress to, quote, perfect that revolution, end quote. And where he's getting at with that is that he believed the South had forced a revolution upon the North. And so he wanted to carry that revolution through to its logical conclusion. And that conclusion being a free and equal society for all citizens. But the lopsided nature of Congress is a bit misleading. It's not just a giant W on the board for the Republicans because Congress was not full of men like Thaddeus Stevens and Charles Sumners only. Most Republicans were actually moderate, and only about one in three House Republicans identified as radical. So the great challenge then for Stevens and other radicals would be to get those moderates on board with their political agenda, since the Democrats in the House and the Senate were a tiny minority who could scream as loud as they wanted, but were ultimately powerless. Thankfully, although not so much for the victims, the South helped the radicals on this front because the Northerners were shocked at how the South had gotten away with implementing the Black Codes, which we talked about last episode, but the Black Codes were effectively the system of rebuilding the slave labor system that so many had worked and, of course, even given their lives to dismantle. Those Black Codes, as well as the white supremacist violence that plagued the South, unified both the moderates and the radicals around an agenda designed to suppress the neo-Confederate regimes that were emerging right before their eyes. The Republicans passed two major bills representing this hasty marriage between the radicals and the moderates' very different desires. The first expanded the powers and responsibilities of the Freedmen's Bureau. Under this bill, the Bureau would be responsible for handling legal cases involving Black people, and it would be assigned the responsibility of protecting their rights. In order to achieve this, the Bureau would be granted the power to call on the military and to intervene against state governments by bringing officials to a federal court for denying civil rights to black people. So you can kind of see why that would be seen as a federal overreach in its day. The second bill, the Civil Rights Bill of 1866, sought to outline how the 13th Amendment would actually be enforced. Under this bill, the government granted all people the rights to make contracts, sue in court, and have the state protect private property. State officials and governments could be sued in a federal court for failing to uphold these rights under the new law. In short, the bill was meant to guarantee the rights of all citizens, regardless of the color of a person's skin or the state that they lived in. This bill, in particular, represented a massive expansion of federal power. Now, noticeably missing from these two bills were two very key pieces of the radical agenda, and that is universal male suffrage and land redistribution. And recall from our last episode that land redistribution was probably the most important thing to many freedmen at the time, 
because owning your own land was seen as in the 19th century essential to economic and political freedom. But these were the compromises that radicals needed to make in order to maintain the support of Republican moderates. These compromises would mean that freed people would be granted civil equality, but not meaningful political or economic equality. Most freed people would remain poor, incapable of voicing their political concerns, and therefore equality did little to materially improve people's lives. But still, these were big and important strides for Congress to make. But these steps were much too big for President Andrew Johnson, who vetoed both bills the moment they landed on his desk. The Freedmen's Bureau bill, he said, would cost too much money and it would encourage black indolence, in his words, which, in other words, means it would encourage them to be lazy and not want to work. His words for the Civil Rights Bill were actually even harsher. He saw it as an attack on the rights of white people, and he denounced this plan to protect, quote, the Chinese of the Pacific states, Indians subject to taxation, the people called gypsies, as well as the entire race designated as blacks, people of color, Negroes, mulattoes, and persons of African blood, unquote. So it almost seems like what the Radical Congress is proposing, it's not just that like the steps are too big for Johnson. It's just that he's never going to get there because that's just completely not how he envisions what America should be. You know, it should be for the exactly, white man, yeah. not for... Yeah the black man or any other sorts of minorities. Exactly. I mean, the the whole state's rights, like I don't like federal power, like, et cetera. It, it was probably really just a cover for these beliefs right here, which in, a, in another way, Johnson put it, it was that kind of ethnically diverse America that Johnson referred to as a, quote, mongrel republic. And yes, it's probably the main thing that he was afraid of and the main reason he was hesitant about these steps. Yeah. And he's not, he's not shy about saying exactly what he envisions the future of America to be. I mean, that those two words, Mongol Republic is, is those are some, that's some pretty strong language. Yeah. So in Johnson's mind, it was right for him to veto these bills because he had been elected by all of the people. Whereas Congress represented the narrow and specific interests of individual districts. And on a side note, this was interesting considering Johnson actually wasn't elected. He was elected by an assassin's bullet, as it were, not by an actual referendum. Although I guess you could argue he was elected as vice president, but I think we all know who was actually elected in that election. Yeah, no, he was just tacked onto the ticket to kind of uh, appeal to Southern voters, right? Because he he had that Tennessee yeah. background. He was that loyal Democrat. So this- yeah. This unity of those two things is going to be a beautiful thing. But no, he, he, he was elected by nobody. Yeah, exactly. M- the majority of people voted probably for Lincoln um, rather than Johnson. But in any case, Congress spoke as though they were in the midst of a revolution. And honestly, they were. Later commentators have called this period in time the second founding because so much major legislative and ideological shifts took place. But in this second founding, Johnson positioned himself as the counter-revolutionary, defending the Republic against the radical changes that were being proposed by the Republicans. But the radicals in Congress who saw themselves as bringing this revolution to its natural conclusion struck back, and Johnson's veto brought many of the conservative and moderate Republicans to their side. They first narrowly failed to override the veto of the Freedmen's Bureau bill. 
And then Congress actually overrode the veto of the Civil Rights Bill, which was the first time a veto had ever been overridden. And with the momentum coming from that first override, Congress was also able to override the veto on the Freedmen's Bureau Bill, giving the Freedmen's Bureau an expansive mandate and the power to enforce the Civil Rights Act. But in the post-Civil War era, laws meant nothing unless you could enforce them at the point of a gun. And even as early as 1866, this was starting to get difficult. Enlistments were falling, which meant there were fewer and fewer soldiers stationed in the South. And in January of 1866, there were 207 outposts across the whole South, and that number fell to 101 by September of the same year. Despite their new sweeping mandate, the Freedmen's Bureau was virtually powerless to actually enforce any of the civil rights they were meant to protect. Hugo Hillebrand, who was a former Hungarian revolutionary who also fought in a revolution in Italy, so we're talking about a guy with two revolutions on his resume, was sent to be an agent for the Bureau in the South. By all rights, a guy like this should have been able to whip the Southerners into shape, except Hillebrand's force that he was to use to enforce laws in the South was comprised of four soldiers, and none of them even had a horse. So naturally, under his jurisdiction, whites were able to steal horses, mules, and other property from freedmen without any repercussions. In one case even, a woman reported a murder of a Union soldier 19 miles away, and without a horse to take him there, Hillebrand sent the woman on her way and just left the body to rot in the street. Another more jarring case that demonstrates the powerlessness of the Bureau was the New Orleans riots. In New Orleans, there was a class of wealthier, educated, mixed-race people who had lived there for over a century and had become to be considered an important part of the culture and politics of the city for quite some time. These mixed-race Louisianans formed their own political class and began advocating for their right to vote in addition to other freedoms that they cared about. Along with Republicans in the state, they called for a reconvened convention in order to grant the right to vote to Black people. And I guess unsurprisingly, unfortunately, the convention was attacked by a mob that was led by the New Orleans police. One witness recounts that as he watched a wagon carry away a pile of corpses, one of the black men in the wagon arose. He had apparently survived. And then he was shot in the head by a policeman, ensuring that he was dead for sure this time. Jesus Christ. Yeah. In the end, 37 people were killed all of them Republicans, and 34 of those among the dead were black. So it was a ruthless massacre. Another prominent example are the white supremacist riots in Memphis that we talked about on the last episode. If you want a more detailed account of those, uh, go back, but we'll just summarize kind of what happened there in this incident. Um, The white police in Memphis arrested a black veteran, and this sparked several days of rioting in which the police led a mob into the southern part of town where people were injured and sometimes killed, and property was burned to the ground. In this riot, 48 people were killed, and 46 of those people were black. 91 homes were burned to the ground, as well as four black churches and 12 black schools. So their entire community and economy was just eviscerated. The violence was disproportionately committed towards black people, and it was led by the police in Memphis. The rioting didn't stop for three days before General George Stoneman finally declared martial law and suppressed the riot. 
And yet there wasn't a single indictment for these crimes. None of the cops were even fired. The only punishment of any kind that took place was when one day later, a former Confederate soldier was shot and killed by his own people simply for having a conversation with a black person. These awful offenses did not go unnoticed in the North. Some Northerners were horrified by the gruesome violence that was committed in these riots and extrajudicial killings, and others couldn't stand to see the Southern governments flagrantly breaking the law, and given that they had just witnessed a civil war, this was extra cause for concern. These acts of violence served as an excellent argument for the radicals' agenda. It was hard to believe the rosy stories that President Johnson told about white Southerners when there were cities burning to the ground and massacres occurring on Johnson's watch, and in the case of Memphis, in his own home state. Radicals like Thaddeus Stevens and Charles Sumner had told the American people that whether they liked it or not, they were in the midst of a revolution. The only question that remained was, would the North respond with revolutionary actions of their own, or would they stand idly by as the South was plagued with white supremacist violence? These extraordinary circumstances gave the Republicans the political capital to propose another amendment to the Constitution. The chaos in the South allowed the Republicans to argue, and argue quite correctly, that such action was necessary. The primary purpose of the 14th Amendment was to enshrine the Civil Rights Bill of 1866 into the supreme law of the land. The bill needed defending because many of the Republicans realized that elections would come soon, and before polling, none of them could tell if they'd be returning to their seats. It also needed defending from the Supreme Court in case future or present justices decided to strike it down. The overall goal of the 14th Amendment was profound, but it was also deeply grounded in the politics of its day and was thus limited in scope. Here's an excerpt from the amendment that has become known as the Equal Protection Clause. Quote, All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. End quote. So already you can probably see what a seismic shift this was. According to the amendment, any person born or naturalized in the United States was considered a citizen, regardless of race, creed, or ethnicity, and it was therefore unconstitutional to deny them rights that were granted to other citizens. And there was an additional text in the amendment, some of which ensured that former rebels couldn't become congressmen, and some of it ensured that the U.S. government did not owe former slaveholders repayment for their lost slaves. But the Equal Protection Clause is the most important and most often cited piece of this amendment. The amendment did not guarantee universal male suffrage, although its text did penalize states that sought to ban access to the ballot for some of its people. For this reason, Thaddeus Stevens didn't think the amendment went far enough, but he supported it anyway, saying that he did so, quote, because he lived among men and not among angels, end quote. I love that quote because it's so arrogant. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, like he, he's like so like. I guess he's the angel in this context, but I mean, I, I mean, obviously I agree with him because, you know, I'm living in the 21st century, but yeah. And I, I agree for the same reason. 
Other activists like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton critiqued the amendment in ways that even Stevens wouldn't. They pointed out that every word of the amendment seemed to refer only to males and therefore denied the vote to women. And they actually submitted a petition arguing that suffrage should be extended to women. But as we know in history, at this point, at least, it was ignored. As Congress sought ratification for this new amendment, Johnson decided that he would campaign against the 14th Amendment in the upcoming midterm elections, making that election a referendum on the amendment itself. Now, I think it's worth outlining Johnson's strategy here because this behavior is a little bit strange. Johnson was a Democrat, but he had also supported the Union and now was the head of the Republican Party. So why was he campaigning against his own party exactly? Well, for Johnson, there isn't always a method to the madness, but in this case, there is something of a method. So let's explain. Johnson wanted to forge a new conservative party by bringing together the Southerners and the conservative Northerners. He would usher in this new party under the banner of the National Union ticket that he and Lincoln had rode to the White House in 1864. The end goal of this party is best stated by a quote from Johnson that we read off on the last episode, quote, this is a country for white men, and by God, as long as I am president, it shall be a government for white men, unquote. And in a world where you couldn't take a poll and find out how popular or unpopular a president or a policy is, Johnson was not entirely irrational for thinking that he could garner enough support from these groups to dethrone the Republicans. I mean, you just didn't know what people were thinking at the time. In fact, even many of the Republicans worried that in the 1866 elections, Johnson would be proven correct and their agenda would be halted or even destroyed by the incoming wave of national unionists. And so with these intentions, Johnson hit the campaign trail in 1866, and it went pretty much how you would expect a Johnson-led campaign to go. He compared himself to Jesus Christ and depicted himself as offering divine mercy to the Confederacy. He argued with hecklers from the crowd, called for the hanging of several congressmen, Thaddeus Stevens, of course, among them. And during this fiasco of a trip, when one of his advisors begged him to think of the dignity of his office before going on stage to humiliate himself again, Johnson replied, I don't care about my dignity. And then he proceeded to prove it. Johnson had even brought Grant along with him, realizing that Grant was the immensely popular figure that he was and hoping this might bring him some amount of support. But not even this helped him out. Instead, Johnson was overshadowed by the Union general. Sometimes Johnson's own speeches would be drowned out by people calling for him to simply step aside and allow Grant to speak. And despite Johnson's efforts, the 1866 midterms were a sweeping victory for the Republicans, but more so for the radicals. The Republicans increased their already sizable majority in Congress, and the radicals increased their numbers within the Republican Party. But this tremendous electoral victory did not translate into a renaissance period for the radical ideology. In fact, in retrospect, the peak period for the radical Republican agenda came when they were at war with Johnson before the elections. The 1866 elections were the beginning of the slow collapse of the Republican Party and more particularly its radical wing. There were two reasons for this collapse. First, there was a limit to how much could actually be achieved legislatively. Republicans could pass bills until their hands hurt from gripping their pens all day. Southerners would still disobey those laws, and the military would still not have the numbers 
nor the popular support to enforce those laws. Second, the passage of the 14th Amendment gave Southerners something to rally against, and they were able to mount tremendous resistance to Northern occupation and to the granting of civil rights to people of color. And it was that second factor that led to some of the most grisly and disturbing events to ever occur on American soil. White supremacist terrorist groups became active at the close of the Civil War, recruiting ex-soldiers as well as the sons of slave owners who felt that they had had their status and their property stolen from them. And these groups began terrorizing black people as well as white Republicans and Freedmen's Bureau agents. The most prominent of these groups we know well was, of course, the Ku Klux Klan. Six Confederate soldiers founded the Ku Klux Klan in Pulaski, Tennessee, Johnson's home state, again on Christmas Eve in 1865. In its original conception, it was a secret, oath-bound organization dedicated to restoring the white supremacist order that ruled the day before the Civil War. A few years after its founding, Nathan Bedford Forrest and other Klansmen met in Nashville where they tried to organize the Klan into a hierarchical organization where local chapters would report to a national organization. And I'm sure a lot of us are familiar with the silly names that go along with this hierarchy, like what is there, like Grand Wizard, Imperial Dragon, all this really goofy, nerdy fantasy stuff. But a fun fact is that there was a statue of Forrest just outside Nashville off of Interstate 65 that was erected in 1998. So over 100 years after the Civil War came to its conclusion, they put up this statue of Forrest although it is worth mentioning that the statue was torn down in 2021. But this statue, Kevin, you were the one who first showed it to me. This is just a goofy statue. Yeah, so, I mean, you can look up pictures of the statue online. I have seen it a couple of times. I've been, like, through there. And I was actually just passing through there the summer before they took it down, which was, at this point of recording, it was last year. But it's really an ugly statue, And actually, when they took down the statue, they even said that uh, even Forrest himself would think it was ugly. That was like one of the things that the legislature said when they took it down. If I had to describe it, because, of course, this is just an audio medium and, and, you know, we we will post a picture of the statue on our Instagram because it really is worth looking at. It looks like Tim Burton had something to do with the consultation of making it like like, that's that's how weird it looks. Yeah, and I think it was designed really to look frightening. He's designed to look kind of deranged and like bloodthirsty almost. And so I think that element, even though it looks very cartoonish, it was pretty intentional. The guy who designed it was a guy named Jack Kershaw, and he was the co-founder of the League of the South, which I'm sure you can figure out what that's about, but it's a white nationalist, white supremacist organization. And he said when the statue came under criticism he went on to defend it by saying quote somebody needs to say a good word for slavery unquote so that tells you about the intentions of the statue yeah so really telling there when i saw it last it had been covered in pink paint because people have started to take a notice of it you know and especially with a lot of the stuff that happened during black lives matter and all that sort of thing and they started to vandalize it and throw paint on it and stuff and yeah so and then i guess eventually they just decided to take it down and it just goes to show and not to toot our own horn here that a lot of this stuff that we're talking about is still very relevant today so a lot of the stuff in this second season is still playing out in our society yeah i mean of course it's gone through many different iterations but yeah this thing was put up in 1998 i mean 
Yeah. And, and if I you can and I add were both alive too, in 1998. Exactly. Yeah. And if I can add something too, I was one of the books I was reading for this sort of reconstruction section, they pointed out that actually the final, st- I, I can't remember which state it was off the top of my head. It might've been South Carolina, but the final state to actually ratify the 13th amendment, which, you know, is the one that makes slavery illegal. They did it in like the nineties. It was not That's like an insane. old thing. That yeah, is like unbelievable. But yeah, this stuff is not, it's not gone, unfortunately. I wish it were. Yeah. And so re- returning to the Klan and what it was back then, um, the attempt by Klan leadership to institutionalize it largely wound up failing. And the Klan remained a localized grassroots organization with varieties of factions that acted autonomously. And to make no mistake, the lack of an institutional structure did not inhibit the Klan from the violent actions that it would go on to commit. The Klan may have failed to institute the white supremacist government that they wanted to create, but they were remarkably successful at terrorizing the people they wanted to terrorize and getting away with it. Not only were Klansmen able to commit acts of horrific violence against everyday black citizens walking around, they were able to execute prominent politicians in broad daylight. Wyatt Outlaw who was a prominent politician in North Carolina, became the first black town commissioner. And local racists were obviously enraged by this appointment and organized night rides by the Klan to intimidate him. And in one instance, he fired on the Klansmen, but no one was hit. And not long after, Klansmen stormed his house, dragged him out, and hung him in the courthouse square, leaving a message on his body that eerily said, Beware ye guilty, both black and white. So the Klan made it clear that they weren't only going after black people, they were going after any white people that would seek to elevate them in any way in modern society. In another prominent instance, State Senator John W. Stevens was assassinated and his body was found with 40 gunshot wounds in it. 40. And it's worth noting, right, a state senator, an important person, they they were just able to get away with it. Yeah. I mean, they weren't just pulling random African-Americans out of their houses. They were going after leading figures in the U.S. government. I mean, this clan is a lot more powerful than the one that we know today. For sure. Elsewhere in the South, the Republicans actually made gains politically, but these gains were costly in a number of ways. First, the violence that we just described meant that it was very difficult to actually carry out elections. If the military didn't step in, elections would turn into battlefields for private militia groups and terrorist organizations. But this led to the uncomfortable result of the military intervening in elections, something which would become problematic to say the least in future elections and in this very podcast. Second, the Republicans in the South often were not as radical as the freedmen might have hoped. In Georgia, for example, Republicans cooperated with Democrats to expel all black members from the legislature. They argued that the Constitution guaranteed black people the right to vote, but not necessarily the right to hold office. So a lot of these Republicans were not the types of Republicans that Thaddeus Stevens might have been and that other radicals were. While their plans and their progress were falling apart in the South, the radicals in Washington were getting ready to go to war with Johnson once again. 
Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, who was a holdout from Lincoln's time as president, was a radical Republican who vowed to support Republican policies as long as he was in office. The Republicans in Congress read the writing on the wall and realized that if they wanted to continue leading Reconstruction, they would need to keep Stanton around. And so they passed the Tenure of Office Act, which prevented the president from firing cabinet members without the approval of the Senate. And Johnson, of course, being the person that he was, decided to fire him anyway and replace him with his friend General Lorenzo Thomas. And this turned out to be the perfect storm for radicals. You see, due to Lincoln's assassination, there currently was not a vice president. And this meant that if Johnson were to be removed from office because, I don't know, maybe he would be impeached or something, he would be replaced by the president pro tempore of the Senate, which was the radical senator Benjamin Wade. Now, there were two main drivers for this fiasco. First, Republicans didn't want to lose the progress they had made in the South by losing control of the Secretary of War, an essential position considering the military was largely the institution that carried out Reconstruction. Second, there were a number of figures who believed their presidential aspirations were at stake. First, everyone knew Ulysses S. Grant was the man to beat for the nomination, as he was just an enormously popular figure at the time. Senator Benjamin Wade, who was the president pro tempore of the Senate and the guy who would ascend to the presidency if they impeached Johnson, he figured that this was his only chance at the presidency since he would almost certainly lose in a competition against Ulysses S. Grant. And Chief Justice Salmon Chase, who would preside over the trial, also had his eye on the White House and thought that this shakeup might be his only chance to get there. He kind of figured that by getting himself in the public eye, by presiding over this trial, he might actually have a chance at winning the nomination. Secretary of War Stanton, who had now barricaded himself in his office, also figured he could make himself into a hero worthy of the office. And of course, Andrew Johnson intended to pursue a second term as well. Johnson wound up being acquitted by just one vote, with several Republicans claiming that the original bill in question, the Tenure of Office Act, was unconstitutional. And yet somehow, the only person who came out of this fiasco with his political career intact was Grant. Benjamin Wade was right. Grant took the nomination from him quite easily, and the old Union general didn't even feel the need to nominate him as VP, which meant he wasn't even much of a threat in the election. Wade would go on to lose re-election to the Senate and then not return. Chief Justice Chase, who had been a radical and a staunch supporter of the rights of former slaves, decided to swing to the Democratic side, which is kind of tragic in a way, in pursuit of his own political ambitions. He didn't even get the nomination, and he damaged his otherwise stellar legacy in the process. Grant decided to help his old buddy Edwin Stanton out by nominating him to the Supreme Court, but he died of an asthma attack before the Senate could even vote to confirm him. And Andrew Johnson, of course, was able to avoid impeachment just narrowly. This was probably largely due to the hard work of his lawyers, who did the impossible by getting Johnson to keep his mouth shut for a while. And that really, you said it well, doing the impossible, because they managed to keep him in the White House when I think pretty much every day of the trial, he's like, I'm going down there, I'm going down there, I'm speaking my piece. And they somehow managed to put a muzzle on him, which was very difficult for people to do throughout his whole career. I mean, that's what he built his career on. Nobody could muzzle this guy. So that was definitely a feather in the hat of his lawyers. And so ultimately, 
This last man standing, Ulysses S. Grant, would be easily elected to the presidency. He was a well-respected war hero, after all, which helped him out a little bit. But probably his greatest asset was that he wasn't the other guy on the ticket, Andrew Johnson. The new conservative party Johnson wanted to form never came, and his political career effectively ended in 1868, although it is worth noting that in 1875, Tennessee returned Johnson to the Senate, so he did have a bit of a moment of triumph there, although he was to die a few months later. So in 1868, his real effectiveness did truly end. He was, however, more successful than he's sometimes given credit for being. He single-handedly obstructed many of the radicals' most important goals for Reconstruction and probably was the single most effective hindrance to the progression of the rights of colored people. So that's how he's going to go down in history. Uh, Definitely not how I would want to go down in history. But regardless, the election of 1868, despite being a landslide in favor of Grant, would still be incredibly contentious. Violence broke out in several states as mobs of Democrats and Republicans clashed, each trying to prevent the other from getting to the polls. But this season is about the election of 1876, not the election of 1868, so we'll set that aside for now. The Radicals did pass one more amendment to the Constitution, though, following another victory in 1868, and that was the 15th Amendment. The 15th Amendment prevented states from denying their citizens the right to vote based on race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Now, there were still plenty of ways to deny people of color the right to vote, and the former Confederate states would spend the next 150 years experimenting with all the different ways that they might prevent such voting from taking place. But this was still a pretty sizable step in the right direction, and future Supreme Court cases would hinge upon this particular amendment as the right to vote was both expanded and denied to certain citizens. But in spite of this success, the radical movement began to fall apart. Certain elements of the movement wanted to progress further, granting women the right to vote, and expanding further the rights of the federal government to protect black people living in the South. Some elements of the Republican Party wavered at such ideas, and other elements wanted to halt such progress altogether and just turn the ship around. For example, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony actually opposed the 15th Amendment because women were mysteriously missing from the categories of people who were guaranteed the vote. Stanton and Anthony began opposing black civil rights because it seemed to be coming at the expense of women's rights. So a real interesting battle there taking place between two disenfranchised groups kind of on their end fighting for the disenfranchisement of the already previously disenfranchised in order to gain their own enfranchisement and suffrage to vote. Really fascinating struggle there. Other activists like Wendell Phillips, who was an abolitionist, thought that women's suffrage was impossible and that they should instead pursue something achievable, like extending the vote to black men. And then there were other people, like Frederick Douglass, who thought that there was no contradiction between pursuing women's rights and rights for black Americans. He actually advocated for a 16th Amendment that extended the right to vote to women, but unfortunately few joined him in his call. Henry Ward Beecher, the abolitionist minister, found himself torn down the middle on the issue and tried to maintain a neutral stance. And this put him at odds with his sisters, Isabella Beecher Hooker, who was a suffragette, and Harriet Beecher Stowe, who had the very interesting opinion that 
extending the vote to women should be opposed because she believed men ought to be the head of the household. This coming from the woman who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was seen as an extremely progressive book in its day, has this very interesting view that women should not be able to vote because men should be the head of the household. And that was that. Really, really interesting spectrum of views here. Yeah, and I think that this position that Henry Ward Beecher is in is actually indicative of where the party is at as a whole at this particular important point in time. Basically, you have part of the party trying to continue the march forward and take this progressive movement as far as they can. And then you have the other half of the party saying, no, 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 we can't go too far. Like, we have to stop here. and We did enough, basically. So that's kind of the dynamic that's at play here. But it wasn't just women's suffrage that split Republicans in a variety of directions. It was other issues like racial discrimination, as well as other unrelated issues like taxes and government corruption and things like this. But despite its flaws and failures, and despite the best efforts of the many enemies of radical reconstruction, the radical movement had tremendous successes unrivaled by almost any movement in American history. The three amendments they were able to pass, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, are far and away the most impactful amendments ever added to the Constitution. Despite the way Americans today squabble over the meaning of the First Amendment or the Second Amendment, the 14th Amendment is the most litigated part of the entire Constitution by far. And if you're interested in this, you can find out more in a documentary that Will Smith actually did, which is on Netflix, about the 14th Amendment, and it's called Amend. Super good, highly recommend it. Very kind of engaging, interesting documentary. And this part may be subjective, but I would also add that these three amendments are more in line with what we traditionally view as the American ideal than any amendment passed by the founders. Today, Americans universally identify their country as a bastion of freedom for all people and equality of citizens under the law. None of these things were priorities for James Madison but they were priorities for Frederick Douglass and other radicals during this time period. It's for this reason that we've said multiple times, and we'll say it again, and we're simply echoing much smarter people than us on this, that Reconstruction represents a second founding of this country. For better and worse, Reconstruction created what we now call the United States of America. Next time on the Almost Presidents podcast. We finally bring almost president Samuel J. Tilden into this mess. So you should all be very excited. It took us three episodes, but the fourth one, we are going to talk about the man who this season is all about, Samuel J. Tilden. We are going to talk about Tilden's introduction to politics, and we'll also be joined by a special guest who will tell us all about one of Tilden's key mentors. I'm talking the Yoda to his Luke Skywalker, the Iroh to his Prince Zuko, and of course, the Miyagi to his Daniel son. So all this is to say that you definitely do not want to miss episode four of our second season. So we'll talk to you then. All right. So if you are still with us at this point in the podcast, you know what time it is. It is the time in the show where we recommend books that we're reading that aren't necessarily related to the research that we do to bring you each episode of the podcast. So Kevin, uh, what are you reading in the month of August? All right. So funnily enough, I, I meant to have a book on me, but I, I left it in another room. But fortunately, a piece of the book fell out and I have the first maybe 20 pages sitting here uh, that happened to be on my desk. Um, and the book is Marx, A Guide for the Perplexed 
by John Seed. This is like a guide for the perplexed. It's like a series where they take like different, I guess, philosophers or thinkers or whatever. And they do like a little intro uh, writing on their work. So uh, it's kind of like an intro to, I guess, a bunch of stuff that Marx has written. And I think it's really good. Um, It's kind of something I've been looking for for a while because I've been I've read bits and pieces of Marx here and there, but I always feel it's hard to contextualize it because, you know, he was obviously writing during like the American Civil War, like way long ago for our time. So sometimes it's hard to contextualize it all. And so I wanted like a good intro. And I think this is very good. One of the things that was super interesting is in the beginning, he talks about uh, because I guess this book was written around, you know, maybe like 2012, 2013, something like that. And he has this whole intro about how you know, Marx was this huge philosopher, and then it felt like his ideas went out of favor when the Soviet Union collapsed, and it felt like communism had sort of died. And he was like, well, now it looks like Marx is kind of back because you had a financial crisis and Occupy Wall Street as like a movement that was explicitly backed by a sort of Marxist ideology and stuff. And so it felt like Marx was kind of back. And I thought it was like a very interesting intro because now I'm reading it today and I feel like all of that stuff is gone. Like we have strikes going on, but they don't feel like they're like the uh, Occupy Wall Street where they're like motivated by an explicit Marxist ideology kind of thing. So, yeah, I just thought it was interesting, you know, um, and obviously the going into detail about every single important work that Marx wrote, the dude wrote a lot. Um, so it's kind of hard to actually have time to sit down and read like a 2000 page book called Capital, you know. So, you know, yeah, it's a good book. Interesting introduction. Sounds good. I mean, Karl Marx is obviously a, a figure that you really need to understand in order to understand the way that governments shifted and things like that throughout the course of, you know, the Soviet Union and, and on and on and on. I would hope, though, that that premise that that guy said that Marx's ideas are coming back in favor is at least changing in people's minds a little bit. And I'm not saying I'm a communist, but like I'm hoping people are getting really freaking sick and tired of the behavior of these billionaires that we have in this country. You know, I mean, what's his face? The Amazon guy, Bezos, you know, shooting himself and uh freaking captain Kirk up into space. Zuckerberg and Elon literally talking about having a dick measuring contest in a cage fight. I mean, I would hope that at least shifts people in a, in a little bit of a direction of like, these people are so fucking stupid and irresponsible. Like we should be able to, you know, get <laughs> at least a little bit more of a share than we're getting. Yeah. I mean, in that sense, I think there are people are, you know, people do feel like inequality is not good and that it's kind of out of control. So I think in that sense, his ideas are kind of relevant. And I do think, you know, a lot of his ideas are certainly relevant, but I, I think more like the broader idea of like a communist project, I feel is kind of is kind of gone because one of the interesting things from reading this is there's like a whole part where Marx talks about how unions are this important social institution, but they are at best a distraction from his project because you're not you're you're just not going to win against the employer because the employer has so much power over you. And so what you need to focus on is is changing society. And, you know, you you should do unions. They're fine but they're not going to actually bring about the change that Marx actually wanted to see. So, you know, it, it's interesting. Like one of the things that's very interesting about it is that everybody thinks they know what he thought, 
But then once you kind of get a little bit of a breakdown, it's like, okay, well, there are some things that I was surprised to see there. So anyways, yeah, what are, what, have, what have you been reading? So I started watching Born on the Fourth of July on Netflix. I think by the time listeners hear this, it's probably going to be taken off. Um, I think August 8th, they're getting rid of it. So I was like, all right, let me just check this out. Dad loved it. And as I was watching it, of course, it's an Oliver Stone movie, so it's like three hours. So occasionally I'll be doing something else. And I just searched the name of the main character and was like, oh, shit, this is a real guy. So I ordered the book. Uh, and for those of you that don't know, um, Born on the 4th of July, it's a true story about this just American boy who was born on the 4th of July. And he joined the Marines to fight in Vietnam. And he was paralyzed from the waist down, I think, at the age of 21. And he just talks about how he came to realize that his country had sent him into a conflict that they really had no business in. And so many lives were just wasted and ruined in the process of this war. So I devoured that book. I was amazed at how quick I got through that because he wrote it when he was so young. So I thought there might be a bit of a, uh, you know, you know, his, his immaturity might show at least from the way he handles writing as a craft, you know, nothing about his experience in Vietnam and his view of the world. But the the craftsmanship of it was something that I really did not expect. It was it went into like almost a James Joycean stream of consciousness when he was at boot camp, of just being yelled at and things that he's doing and all that stuff. And uh, when he finally gets into what he saw in combat, which he doesn't do until the very end, it's it's absolutely horrific and uh, heartbreaking. And um, he attended a lot of really interesting protests. Like uh, he even. I think got into the convention hall at a uh, Republican national convention uh, to renominate Richard Nixon for president to give you a sense. Um, so he's a really interesting guy. He's still alive. And he also had been when more recent times protesting the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So I finished that book. That was phenomenal. Might've been maybe the best book I've read this year, honestly. And that's kind of got me in a Vietnam tear, uh, Q, you know, CCR credence, Clearwater revival. So um, now I started Dispatches by Michael Herr, which is basically just about a reporter going around and just talking to as many of these guys, you know, fighting in the Vietnam War as he can. So pretty interesting so far. So we'll see where that journey takes me. Yeah, I mean, man, that, that conflict was so insane. And, and I think the, the soldiers had such a profoundly terrible experience, like po- probably worse than in other wars past, you know, I, I, I remember reading for the Bobby Kennedy series, just about how, like, there was so much disconnection because, you know, soldiers were cycled out more rapidly than they were in previous conflicts. Like you weren't building that right. like band of band of brothers to quote the, you know, the show or whatever yeah. that you would have in world war two. Um, you were kind of getting cycled in and out very quickly. You didn't really know the guys around you as well. Yeah. Vietnam is pretty, terrifying and it's it's really just hard to walk away with it feel in my opinion feeling other any other way than that it was just why did we do this like actually you know i i see the reasons why i can read them you know communism and all that other stuff but like come on like the amount of freaking blood and, and treasure that was just freaking wasted unbelievable and, there, and it doesn't seem like there were any many lessons learned too <laughs> when we look at like Afghanistan yeah, I mean, it, and iraq you know people were so gung-ho to jump right onto that and I don't know. Yeah, it just goes to show that the guys who are ostensibly experts in a lot of these fields, sometimes there's just a total flaw in their reasoning. 
Um, and that's kind of what you see in Vietnam is, is they they totally got that one wrong. They really thought that the whole capitalist system across the, the globe was going to come down if they let up this one domino, as it were. Um, and it was just totally wrong. And so many people died and suffered because of it. And it turned out that we didn't need to do it at all. Yeah, it's so sad and ridiculous. Definitely. And makes me kind of want to contemplate remastering our episode 10 of our first season about Bobby Kennedy and maybe adding more as uh, I fall deeper down this rabbit hole. But we'll see. Yeah, for sure. Before you head out, feel free to subscribe and rate us. Leave a friendly comment on the way out. It really helps the podcast when you do. And if you enjoy what we're doing, you can find our Twitter or Instagram in the description below. We'll keep you updated about the show, and we'll also fill your feed with plenty of good old-fashioned memes. Follow us on Facebook as well if you're a Facebook person. Just type The Almost Presidents Podcast into that search bar. And lastly, you can write into the show. Our Gmail is thealmostpresidentspodcast at gmail.com, which you can also find in the description.